Hello and welcome to the Keeper Cup Podcast. I'm Chad Young. People not with us today, but I've got two great guests. Guys, I'm really excited to talk to. First, I will introduce Adam Scharf. Adam, first time on the show. We're really glad to have you. You are a we, I know you from the the Auto New Slack, and you are you're an Auto New expert. I think at this point, you've you've played a lot of years. You've made some Auto New tools. You, you you do a lot in the in the space. Yeah, thanks for having me, Chad. Uh, th- thanks for having me. Even though that uh, uh, that Joey Weimer pick that you gave your audience didn't really work out, so I'm hoping to redeem <laughs> myself here. That's uh, yeah, it still could. That's how maybe. it goes. So it, it could. Not it could. Yet. It's not. It's not over. It was an uh, uninspiring second half, but he can turn it around. Yeah. So Adam, you can find Adam at co fi co fi co fi co fi. I know there's like a coffee tie-in with that thing. So it's supposed yeah. to be co fi co fi. I've never heard it pronounced. So there, you're, you're yeah. breaking new ground, Chad. But but the website is co fi f i k o dot f dash k o dash f i dot com slash blue shoes is where you can find Adam. He's got his GitHub profile there, and you can see the the auto new tools that he is making. Uh, there's some pretty cool stuff there around player values, managing your draft, things like that. Uh, so, Adam, thanks for joining. Our other guest is Justin Vibber. Justin, I think you have been on the show before, but for those who don't remember, you can find Justin on Twitter at Justin Vibber. You can also find him at Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Vibot, V-I-B-B-O-T. And Justin, thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me again, Chad. Great to be here. So Justin is, you know, his Patreon is is mostly known for the surplus calculator. If you're playing Auto New, it's a, it's a really great tool. If you're not playing Auto New, um, it is a very useful concept. And we're going to talk a little bit about one of the concepts that's built into that today, which is inflation. Talk about what inflation is in Keeper Leagues, why it matters. If you've been listening to the show, you have heard Pete and I talk about it. But I don't know that we've really spent the time to define it, talk about why it matters. We just sort of bring it up occasionally like, oh, well, once you account for inflation, this guy will be more expensive. And yes, that's true, but there, there's there's more to it than that. So that is what we're here to talk about. Before we do that, just because Pete's not here doesn't mean we're not going to talk jersey numbers. And this is episode number 120. So we're looking at jersey number 20. There are there are two number 20s in baseball history who who from a pure talent standpoint pure production standpoint, everyone to put it, stand head and shoulders above everyone else. Frank Robinson wore the number for 21 years. Mike Schmidt wore it for 17. They both, according to baseball reference, put up over 105 career war. No one else is above 70. Uh, so yeah, those, those, those are the two guys, but any other names that stand out to you? Any names you remember with number 20 from your, your childhood, from your fantasy days, anything like that? Yeah, Chad. So I mean, I'm I'm a Brewers fan, so my eye is going to be directed there. And there's a there's a couple really good ones on this list. I mean, you've got Don Sutton is on there. Uh, obviously, not just a Brewer, but uh, you know, a guy, you know, Hall of Famer does all that all that good stuff. Chad and I talked a little before. We've got uh, Kevin Seitzer and Jeremy Burnett who were traded for each other uh, in Cleveland. Both wore twenty for the Brewers, but uh, actually went further down the list. The guy I would really go with. Jonathan Lucroy for the Brewers war number 20. Um, and really, you know, when I think about Jonathan Lucroy, he was a guy that we were just figuring out what framing numbers were in baseball, like that kind of run impact that framing had. And he was really the poster child for that. Had just had a couple of huge war seasons uh, just based on pitch framing. I mean, he, he could hit too, but 
the pitch framing for that. Uh, I think he had like an eight eight war season uh, one year by Fangrass war driving a lot of that from pitch framing. So that that was the guy that really caught my eye there. The guy that you know I was really I was in my adult fan phase finally. So not the kid fan phase, but the adult fan phase that sticks out for me. Jonathan Lucroy will always be remembered for me as the guy who decided he didn't want to play in a World Series and rejected a trade to Cleveland. Yeah, well, that's true. That's Hand, a sore handing spot for that you. title, <laughs> handing that title to the Cubs. Had he had he accepted that trade, you know, who knows? History can who be knows? very different. The, the Cubs that's... might still be might still be in their drought. Cleveland might have finally ended theirs. But then again, R- Roberto Perez ended up playing a lot of catcher through the playoffs for for Cleveland and had a couple of huge hits and so you know it's there's no doubt that Lucroy is a better player than Roberto Perez or was at that time but uh <laughs> you know those hits came in at, at timely moments but That's Justin true. anyone on the number 20 list who, who jumps out for you yes but for the opposite reasons of of what you two guys have been talking about and that's you know speaking as a Chicago Cubs fan speaking of the Cubs is uh, Corey Patterson was number 20. So it's like the land of broken dreams here as a Cubs fan thinking about the number 20. And then when he was off the team and that had failed to materialize the, the, the next great Chicago Cub he was supposed to be, you may or may not remember Felix P.A., was also number 20 on the Cubs just a few years oh, yeah. after Patterson left the team. And he had maybe not quite as much hype, but he was also sort of like, well, Patterson didn't work out, but here's Felix P.A., and he's he's up in the in the bigs and you know, he's going to be the next great Chicago cup and that didn't work out either. So uh, number 20 is kind of a sore spot for the most part as a modern Cubs fan, at well, least. And, and, and Patterson was at least good for a period of time. Like he, yes. he never became sort of the star that was expected, but he had some, he had some good seasons with the Cubs. PA was just like, I don't know. He did nothing. Then he went to, what did he go to the Brewer? No, he didn't go to the Brewers. He, he went to the Orioles. The Orioles. Yeah. He went to the Orioles. Yeah. He, a poor man's uh, one Pierre, which is uh, not great. <laughs> yeah, but without, right. without any of the real skills that. Yeah. And even without the skills, that's, yeah. that's basically what I am. It's like, <laughs> it's like if, if you take one Pierre, but he's, he's not fast and he, he can't play defense, you know, that's me. I'm, I also can't hit and can't run and can't play defense. So. Yeah, that's that's rough. Uh, I, yeah, I'm not really sure who we want to dedicate this to. It, it may be the the Bernit Seitzer episode, just because that's a uh, you know two guys who who played big roles for the Brewers. They were they were both with Cleveland shorter term, but um, Bernitz, as I said, was was traded for for Seitzer in '96. Came to Cleveland. That was not our best playoff run of the '90s, but still an important moment in my childhood. Really, the first time I remember a major deadline deal happening and being like, "Why did we trade this young guy who I think could be really good for this old guy whose like <laughs> knees are failing him?" Which is my, my recollection of Kevin <laughs> Seitzer at the time. And, and it was like, "Oh, okay, I sort of get that now." And so. An important, important childhood moment for me, despite the fact that it didn't lead to any great playoff stuff. It, but it's not going to be, it's not going to be the Jonathan Lucroy episode because guy refused to come to Cleveland and I'll never let him live it down. So <laughs> I'm sure he's very upset by that, by the way. Yeah. Well, I tried, but that's okay. <laughs> Anyways, uh, thank you guys again for joining us, for having this conversation about, about number 20. Apologies to Frank Robinson and Mike Schmidt, who clearly deserve this episode, but... We're, we're getting some Cleveland-Milwaukee crossover, which is a really nice way to upset a Cubs fan. So 
we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> jump on that and it'll work for all three of us kind of but we are here to talk inflation and it's sort of a a complicated a simple but complicated concept it's simple in in its most basic form and justin why don't we start with you can you give us just like a quick definition explanation of like what is inflation yeah so basically whenever you have a a keeper fantasy league usually we talk about that in terms of playing in a league worth salaries uh like an auction league um but some you could also use the same principles for a draft keeper league if you wanted depending on what the keeper costs are associated like a certain round that you keep someone in but in general Inflation is a byproduct of the fact that in an efficient league, most managers in that league are going to keep players whose cost is lower than or whose value is exceeding their cost. So if I have a player for $10 salary, but I think he's worth $20, well, I'm going to keep him. But if I have a player on a $10 salary and he's only worth a dollar, well, then I'm going to throw him back in the pool. And when every manager in the league is making those same decisions, you end up in a situation where there might be. $1,200 worth of salary capped on $1,500 worth of players, however you define the the value of the players. And then what that means is that the remaining value in players out there is a certain amount, but there's more money to spend at auction than there is value to buy. So you have inflation. It's basically the premium you have to pay at auction to acquire. You don't spend a dollar to get a dollar of value. You have to spend a dollar 25 to get a dollar of value, basically. Yeah, and Adam, I know you play in at least one draft keeper league. Justin was, you know, more obviously talked about that briefly, but more focused on on auction values. How does this play out in like just again basic high level? How does this play out in in drafts with keepers? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, so Justin touched on it. A, a, you know, it's it's very similar that. Um, Obviously, if you're just doing a straight draft, um, there's not you don't have dollar values. You have rankings or round values essentially. So you know, for example, the league I play in, you you can keep a player for uh, basically a draft pick three rounds earlier than you originally drafted him for. So say I took a prospect. Let's say uh, actually, I think in the league I'm in, I got in on the ground floor on Corbin Carroll, and uh, I had him for a fifteen fifteenth round pick. This next year, I'm able to keep him for a 12th round pick, which obviously I'm going to do. He's probably, you know, a first or second round pick. I haven't run the numbers on that, but almost certainly. Um, but in effect, that means that uh, on my ranking board, now somebody in my top 15 picks isn't available. Well, you got to start shuffling lesser players up, you know, start decreasing round values on those guys, start taking them, you know, maybe earlier than you're seeing ADPs for. Uh, you know, a typical league, typical, you know, fresh league. So that's something you really have to be cognizant about. And you really have to shift your idea then of, you know, what is a value on, on these rounds? Because, yeah, you know, you, you figure out, yeah, well, this guy's ADP is round 10. Well, I think that he's actually around seven. Well, when you start talking about uh, guys have already been taken out of the pool ahead of round seven. So maybe he's a value in round five now. It's, it, you know, it's really something you got to look at who's being kept, uh, who's been taken out of the pool and what kind of shifting around you have to do with those rankings. Yeah. And just to, to put some some real numbers behind this, because uh, I think, you know, in, in, in auction, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, $10 guy kept for a dollar makes sense, but $10 guy cut at $25. In 
draft leagues. So here, just to, to use some numbers in, in our keeper cut listener leagues, one of our keeper cut listeners leagues, I looked at league number one, just as an example, um, Julio Rodriguez was kept last year for a 12th round pick. The team that picked him up the year before had spent a 14th because it's a, we pay a two round premium in that league to keep a guy. Bobby Witt Jr. is around the same. I think he was kept as in like an eighth or a ninth. It'll be, so he'll cost a sixth or a seventh. Corbin Carroll was a 28th round pick last year or kept maybe as a 28th round pick. And he is, uh, so he'll only cost like a 26th to keep this year. Spencer Strider was kept as a 28th round pick last year. So he'll cost a 26th. Those guys on the NFBC ADP, uh, which isn't necessarily perfect for keeper leagues, but at least gives you a sense of where guys are going. Those guys are Julio Rodriguez is going second right now. Bobby Witt Jr. is going third. Corbin Carroll is going fourth. And Spencer Strider is going eighth. That is four guys out of the top eight picks who are not going to be available in this draft because they're going to be kept by teams that are picking later uh, or, or using a pick later. And so that's four guys at least that have to move into the first round because of that. And so they're, you know, the top four guys who are second round picks in this in NFBC right now. Jose Ramirez will end up being a first round pick for sure. Bryce Harper, I I don't know where he went last year because of the injury. He may have been he may be being kept instead of being picked. So now you got Shohei Otani will have to move up to be a first round pick, even though he's going sort of second round for NFBC right now. Juan Soto will have to move up to the first. Jordan Alvarez, Alvarez right now is going 17th in NFBC leagues, so he is now being inflated by four or five picks, something like that, into being a first round pick. That also, it sort of multiplies as you go down the rounds, right? Because more and more guys are being kept. And so for like for my league where we keep up to nine players per team, when you get late in that draft, there are, what's not, what's that, 108 players, nine times 12 is 108. Yeah, I can do, I can do some basic math here. So it's 108 <laughs> players kept, which means that, you know, the guy who, a, a player who's going, you know, somewhere in the, 300s like you know Jeff McNeil is going 300th overall in NFBC he's going to jump up 108 picks or thereabouts which is going to push him up to being number 192 that's a huge shift in where you're picking him uh, and so that it has sort of the same effect as you see in auction leagues but you have to measure it a little bit differently and it, it changes how you think about, at least for me, it changes how I think about keepers as well as how I think about trades in the offseason. And, and Adam, can you talk a little bit about how your, your your thoughts on inflation might change or do they change who you keep, who you trade for, who you target, things like that? Yeah. Uh, so I think usually when I'm doing it, um, I mean, my my approach is used for, for a non-salary league, certainly. Um, I'm and I, I'm kind of like Justin, I'm, I'm extremely, uh, value focused. Uh, I'm really trying to not to stray from, uh, the projections and, and my methodology for getting values from those projections. The only variance I do from the projections is every year I project Bobby Dahlbeck for 59 home runs. But other than that, I leave it. Alone. Other, other than that, uh, other than that, it'll work out for you uh, someday, someday, someday. It, and in Adenu, that makes him about a $58 player in 62 games. So uh, that's a tip for the audience. <laughs> but I'm generally looking that uh, I really only want to do just a flat, um, if his draft pick is below his value without taking anybody out of the pool. Because obviously at that point, I don't know who other people are taking out of the pool. There's kind of that, you know, 
there's imperfect information back and forth. So you got to make those decisions. I'm really trying to make sure that I'm only keeping people who are values at the round that uh, I project them to, or that I can keep them for rather. Now, is that the right approach for a keeper? I'm not sure. I actually haven't looked that hard at the keeper. That's definitely the minority of my leagues. Um, I do a lot more out of new leagues. So it's possible I'm leaving value on the table by not you know, trying to do that prediction about, okay, do I think there's going to be 50 players kept ahead of, of this guy so he moves up four rounds? You know, Maybe there's value left on the table there. But I, generally, it's hard to talk about surplus in a, in a non-salary league, but I'm, I'm only keeping those players that I see as having a round surplus, essentially. Yeah. So, so just an, an example there, and I'm curious that you're taking this. I've got in one of the uh, Keeper Cut listener leagues, I have two players who were acquired with third round picks last year because of a trade I made. One is Luis Castillo. One is Pete Alonso. They, are, they would both cost me a second round pick to keep. They are both going in the third round this year, but because of who I expect to be kept, a second, they're gonna they're gonna be second round picks, maybe, maybe even late first round picks. You're saying that from your perspective, you're like, no, if they cost you a second and their ADP is in the third, if or you know, I'm using ADP. I know you'd be using your yeah, own sure. sort of rankings, but like right. if you had a guy that you were like, look, this guy is being ranked as a third round pick, he would cost me a second. I know he's gonna go earlier than that. You're you're passing on that player. You're not yeah. saying, look, well, because of inflation, I'll hold that guy. I, I'm probably passing on that player. I mean, in your example where if it's like, well, you know, if I have Pete, you know, I can keep Pete for a second, but he's probably going to go on the second. I mean, you haven't accrued any surplus that way. Right. You know, you're essentially you're essentially paying full market value, not intrinsic value, but market value for that player. So I would probably not do that. No. Yeah. The, the one counter example of that, and I'm curious to hear your, your thoughts on this. So that same league. I took Mookie Betts in the second round last year. Um, I had a, I think I had a late first round pick. And so he was sort of my top of the second round type pick. That league, because of the way we do the draft, we, we basically, depending on where you finish in the league, you get to pick where you draft. And so um, that's a head to head league. The first choice of draft pick goes to the best team that missed the playoffs and then mm-hmm. goes down through the teams that missed the playoffs, then back up through the teams that made the playoffs. I, I think I made the semifinals or something in that one. I'm going to have a relatively late choice of what pick I get. If I end up with like a 12th overall pick or 11th overall pick, the end of the first round, I may end up giving up my first round pick to keep Mookie Betts because he's going to go probably second overall in this league. Mm-hmm because of who the other keepers are. And it may be worth it to me to, to give up that first round pick to get the second overall value. But I think that's sort of an exception where I'm, I'm going to have a lot of information, right? I'll know, I'll have a really good sense of what players going before him are being kept. I, I can know exactly what pick I'm giving up to keep him. Like I'll have a lot of data there because it's so early. Right, yeah. And, and I think in addition to that, I it my approach may break down a bit that early in the draft, even because the, you know, for a salary league, you can, you know, there can be a huge salary difference between your number one and number two player. But obviously if you're drafting, you know, one pick difference is all you can have. So there's kind of this, it's not a linear value of the spots, particularly in the first round, particularly early in the first round. 
Yeah. So like, I, I think that could make sense there for that. I mean, if you're talking about a 10, 10 pick difference in the first round is a lot bigger than a 10 pick difference in the third round. So like, I think that's valid, but that's a real uh, special case, I think. Yeah. So Justin, we talked a lot about this from a draft pick perspective, from an auction perspective. Do you think about it the same way that Adam does that? Like you really, if a guy's a $40 player, you want to keep him at 39, but not at 41, even if you expect inflation? Yes and no. So naively, when I first created the surplus calculator, when I was first thinking about how to measure the effects of inflation, how to account for the effects of inflation when making keeper decisions, I very much had that same approach that Adam does, where I only want to keep players that I think have par surplus, meaning surplus without accounting for inflation at all. Now, and 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 the, the naive approach that the surplus calculator takes when you do enter in a league number is to make that same assumption that all teams are going to keep players who have par surplus. I think that that works fine, especially if you're in a league where the other managers in the league differ from you in terms of how they value players or they're not using, they're not more projection focused or whatever, whatever approach you take, if the rest of your league isn't in line with that, it's very easy to say, well, I'm only going to keep the players that I think are par surplus. You're not keeping a player because of an assumption you're making. You're comfortable knowing that this guy should be a keeper no matter what the situation and context is for the league in terms of who else is being kept. I think that the tighter the league gets in terms of everyone's making very similar decisions and the more you can anticipate what your your league is going to keep, the more you might say, you know what, I really think inflation is going to be 20%. So I'm going to I'm going to keep players up to that 20% premium because I know or I have a very reasonable um, assumption to make that if I don't keep this player who is 10% more expensive than his value, I'm going to have to pay 20% more for him at auction. So it's in that case, it makes sense to keep him. So I would say that now I do want to try to expand beyond only the players that I think are have true sur- surplus and make some more adjustments. But I think a lot of that is because the the values and the market in Audenew is is really as efficient as it's ever been, is, is what I would say. Um, it was a lot easier to make the simple, naive keeper decisions when things were a little more wild, wild west. And I knew I was getting an advantage from just only keeping players that I thought uh, should be kept. Yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense, and it's it's a it's a challenge. It's one of the biggest things I struggle with in my auto new leagues, is particularly with my high priced players. So another another example here in in league six seventy, which is a slow draft league, which there there is importance in knowing it's a slow draft league because slow drafts, uh, especially at the top of the draft, it, there there's a bigger concentration of inflation on the most expensive players because. The, the eight to 12 hours you have to stare at a guy on a screen and be like, oh, do I really want to go to 70 on this guy? Am I going to push myself to 70? I think changes things. And so I have a $68 Juan Soto in that league. Surplus calculator tells me his value is $57. That puts him very, very close to a 20% inflation mark. Um I think inflation will probably be higher in that league. I think it'll probably be even more higher 
at the top of the league. And so if I cut Soto, I think they're, you know, $68 is a lot for Soto. I don't know that he gets to 70, but I think there's a reasonable chance he does. And so I am, I'm having a, an ongoing debate with myself where my mind changes every day about whether or not I'm keeping that Soto. Uh, adding some complexity there is I also have a $69 Ronald Acuna Jr. who I'm definitely keeping. And so I have this ongoing thing of like, am I really going to put $137 between Acuna and Soto? And obviously a lot of that matters in the rest of my league. But I mean, Justin, it sounds like you're saying a few years ago, you'd have been like, no, Soto is a 55 to $60 player. Yeah, there'll be inflation, but you cut him at 68 Today, it sounds like you might be more conflicted. More, more nuanced. You, more you nuanced. say nuance, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think it also, to be honest with you, I think it also matters the context of your team and the strength that you feel your team has compared to the rest of the league. Mm-hmm. If yeah. if I'm if I feel like I'm a favorite, right? I might be willing to um, keep a player a little above what I normally would expect because then I'm locking in, you know. Uh, more certainty, right? Um, I are, I feel like I already have enough surplus and strength on my roster. I don't mind a buck or two over what I think a player should be kept or right at that, you know, watershed price. You know, I'm, I'd be more willing to keep them then. Whereas if I'm rebuilding or if I am, you know, I feel like I'm middle of the pack, I might be more reticent to keep them. Of course, then if I have a really not great team, I maybe I'm, I'd, I'd keep them anyway because then they're a trade, you know, mid-season trade candidate, right? So, yeah, in general, I would say that I do factor in my anticipated inflation, keeper inflation, when I'm making my decisions. I do also try to consider how my team looks compared to the rest of the league, and that might change some of the decisions that I make. But, you know, I, I think the other thing is, is that it's it's tough because you really want to be able to, you want to zig when your league is zagging. If you feel like the rest of your league is more likely to be keeping those close calls, that should make you more likely to not keep those close calls because in general, the more that they're keeping overpriced players, the lower inflation is going to be. And that means the more purchasing power your your auction dollars have. So you would want to have as much uh, available auction dollars as possible. But then again, the converse is true as well. If your league is very conservative and they're only naively keeping players that have surplus, that's when you would want to keep all those close calls because you know now inflation is going to be 40%, not 20%. And you're you're not going to find any values at auction, basically. So you'd want to keep more of those close calls on your on your keep cut decisions. Makes sense. Let's take a real quick break. When we come back, we'll get into a little bit more of the the nuance, as Justin says, of inflation. All right. Welcome back. So we've been talking about inflation. I'm here with Adam Scharf and Justin Vibber. And Justin, you were just talking about this sort of idea of, you know, the the lower inflation is, the more people are aggressive about keeping players, the more spending power each dollar will have at the auction. And at the other end of the spectrum, the more sort of conservative people are about really only keeping their best values, the less value your dollar will have at the auction. Do you try to predict that? And I'd hate to hear from both of you on that. Like, do you try to predict that? And if so, how? And maybe Adam, why don't you why don't you jump in first on this? Yeah. Um, so I think 
you have to try and and this is going to be something that um is going to be i mean it's going to depend on how much you know your fellow managers in the league probably um you're going to have a sense uh if it's not a new league obviously you're going to have a sense of the kind of decisions that they make are guys prospect hounds that they're going to end up keeping a lot of prospects who probably aren't going to put up value this year you know are they guys who you know, always feel like the high dollar value uh, players are harder to find at auction. So they're always going to keep those guys. I mean, there's, there's a lot of human factors in that, but um, if you want to try to, you know, optimize your decisions, I think you have to try to make those, those predictions of your league mates. And it's really something, and this is something that uh, over the past year I was trying to do and really struggling with. I was, you know, I naively thought, uh, well, you know, this is an easy problem. I'll just, you know, if you iterate through the rosters, surely you'll come to some uh, optimal inflation value where only players that uh, whose inflated value is is higher than their salary, those are the only guys you keep. And just because of how, uh, obviously, as you keep more players, inflation moves. So because of that moving target, that optimization actually doesn't work. Um, I actually found you'd end up keeping basically everybody in the league if you tried to do that, everybody that projected for value. So like, that's a way that you can't do it. Uh, it turns out you have to rely more on uh, historical norms, uh, if not for your league, than for, uh, for example, for Adenu at large. You can look at some historical norms for that and try to predict it. Um but I think if you want to optimize your decisions, you have to at least make an attempt to to figure that out. Yeah, Justin, what about you? I mean, are you, are you trying to make these kinds of predictions, or are you just trying to avoid guessing? Uh, no, I'm absolutely trying to, to to predict what my particular league inflation is going to look like, and I think that there's a few factors to consider. I agree with Adam 100%. You want to consider your own individual league, as I, I kind of alluded to earlier. Is, is your collection of managers in your league more likely to overkeep, underkeep, um, you know, keep at the top of the value spectrum, focus more on the, the value, the surplus values in the lower end? Only you know your particular league's context. And then, yes, I'd also want to consider from a global perspective. Now, it's been a number of years since I've done this, but I had posted, I think, two or three years in a row on Fangraphs, the sort of global auto new keeper uh, inflation based on my own values across all Fangraphs points leagues, each of, like I said, it was probably two or three years consecutively that I did this. And then I sort of had a general range of by league age in general, the older the league, the more the inflation, but you sort of get to like a plateau at a certain point, And then you sort of see an oscillation where it sort of revolves around a point rather than just continuing to escalate forever. But in general, like a second year league, you've, you've completed your first year in this auto new league, you're going into your second year. Most often those leagues don't have hardly any inflation at all. And sometimes it's zero inflation or negative even. So the context of your league age, I think matters. So what I do, my approach, to put it simply, I will use a surplus calculator the naive assumption, as I mentioned earlier in the surplus calculator, is that only players with surplus, based on the values that are loaded in the calculator, are going to be kept. So you mentioned League 670, Chad. That's the league you're in, uh, Saber Points League. 
um, yep. where you have that decision to make about uh, Acuna and Soto. So if I pull up the surplus calculator right now for that league, the inflation percentage that it shows is 45.9%. Now, I agree with Adam, and we had a big discussion on Auto News Slack after he posted a, a, a paper that he did sort of talking about some of the things that he was finding with uh, is the the current method of calculating inflation correct or are there some changes that we can make? Um, I do agree that you can sort of get mathematically stuck in this loop of you should just be keeping everybody. But empirically, what we see, you know, it doesn't matter so much if that's what mathematically should be happening. We know our league isn't going to behave like that. We know they're not going to keep everybody. What I have found in the past is that if I look at this raw surplus uh, inflation percentage as shown on the surplus calculator, I've tracked my leagues over the years and I'm in like 10 leagues every year. I track them against that number and then I compare it against what the actual keeper inflation is once the deadline is done. What I have found is that on average, the keeper inflation ends up being like 15% lower than the number shown on the surplus calculator right now. So for example, in 670, the surplus calculator is showing an inflation percentage of 45.9. I would probably start with an estimate of about 30% inflation for that league once the deadline is done. Now, I may adjust that number down if I think that, again, if I think there's going to be a lot of uh, overpriced players kept, or if I think that the managers in, my, in that league are more aggressive in keeping players, or I might adjust it up if I think that everyone's really, you know, dialed into who should be kept and who shouldn't be kept, and, and the inflation is actually going to be a little bit higher than that. But I would start there at 30%. And I have a, there is a, uh, sell there in the surplus calculator on that team totals tab called keeper inflation assumption. And that's where I would put in 30%. And that basically forces the surplus calculator to change who it's flagging as a keeper for everybody who has keeper value up to 30% above, you know, 30% of their inflated value above their salary is kept. Um, and then if you could look at your team totals, your team roster, that now indicates to me that Acuna definitely should be kept. He was a par, you know, value. But Soto now has an inflated value of $73 with his salary being 68. So then I would say he has $5 of inflated surplus if I'm expecting 30% inflation. So I'd probably keep him. Even though that is going to put you in, you know, you have the constraint of your sa of your cap, right? Like that's the other factor. At a certain point, if you have $425 worth of salary that you think should be capped, but you can't literally can't keep that much salary, but then that's what you, the trade market is for, right? That's when you say, I need to, to reduce my salary, but I can have sort of the same quality of my team at the end of the day, but I need to cut salary, but I'm still trying to cut salary with keepers, right? And not just you know, I don't care if I have a $44 Trey Turner that like the surplus calculator thinks he's a $23 value, no matter what, if you agree with that, you're not going to keep him no matter what inflation right. is. It would have to be, you know, a hundred percent inflation basically. Yeah. It's interesting. You guys are, are both saying you, you do try to make some predictions there. I, I tend to be, there's certain leagues where I will make those kinds of predictions on what the league is going to do. In general, I tend to assume somewhere between 
25 and 35% for a long-term established league and just roll with that Yeah, because I, I find it so challenging. Like I'm looking right now at the food and travel league, which Justin, you are, you are back in it this year. Mm-hmm. Um, Adam, I don't think you're in this one, right? I'm not in that one. No. no. Um, but like, I, you know, I was like, I, I spent some time with this in, in anticipation of this episode and I was like, okay, there's one manager in there, uh, Joe Katz, who I know is like he is aggressive about keeping high priced players. He always is. He believes that stars are where you win the game. He's going to keep those guys. Justin, you're back in this league replacing a guy named Miguel, who was uh, a bit of a wild card, I'll say, around keepers. Where like he is just as likely to like cut everyone on his team as he is to keep everyone on his team, depending on how he's feeling and what thought experiment he wants to to put into play over the course of the the off season you got you know slow in that league who is going to keep his stars and especially his star hitters but could cut almost everyone else um i i expect you to be pretty tight to your values um mod is typically pretty tight to his values like it's just a really varied group and most of my leagues are are varied like that and so i find that trying to predict what's going to happen is uh, it gets me into trouble more often than it helps me. Yeah, and I and I, so, I think that's a good shout because even though I'm talking about you know making my estimates and letting that drive keeper decisions, I do think that it's very important to understand that in general, I think you should be more conservative with that estimate, meaning don't assume inflation is too high. I think, and I don't know if Adam would agree or not, I think you make more mistakes if you assume inflation is higher than it will end up being and you end up keeping players that you shouldn't have kept. I think more mistakes are made there than if you underguess inflation and maybe you throw somebody back that maybe was a borderline keeper and maybe they are going to go a little bit more than you expected at auction. I feel like there's more mistakes made if you overestimate your keeper inflation in your league than if you underestimate it. So, you know, I, I, I think taking an approach like that, where like, there are some leagues where I just say 20%. And I know that 20% is probably too low, but I'm okay because I know that it's probably not going to be much less than 20% in a mature league. So I'm okay using that as my baseline. Um, Adam, do you agree with that, that you're, you're going to make more mistakes overestimating and being too aggressive on your keeps than you are underestimating and cutting too many? Uh, I'll be honest. I I actually don't know. Um, I think that's a really, I think that's a hard thing to measure. Um, I I think a lot of it is going to depend on your team context. Uh, You know, kind of going back to Justin made a point earlier that um, sometimes those decisions are going to matter on where you think you're going to place in the league table. I mean, so if, if you're going to place high, if you're, you know, if you're looking good, if you've got surplus already, um, you know, I think, I think arguably, you know, and, and I also think it matters where you're keeping in that table. I mean, we, this has been a, a discussion on Slack, I'm sure multiple times every year, but, um, you know, people will talk about the fake surplus uh, from projections that there'll be, you know, a player that's, that's median salary is like $8, that steamer, their first projections will say, well, that's a $25 player. And, uh, you know, people, people act on that, uh, and that, and that ends up not being so, but I think as you go down in the value, there's a lot, there's a lot more downside to, um, those poor decisions, 
particularly for players whose salary is over their value, over their uninflated value. But I think if you're if you're competing and you're at the top, I'm more hesitant to say that that keeping those top value players is wrong. But it, it's something that um, I don't know that I've done the investigation on to have a good sense either way or the other. That's I'm certainly not saying Justin's wrong. That very well could be. But I think there's a lot of there's a lot of context around whether it's a good or bad decision. So I I tend to actually make I, I make two different inflation uh, assumptions when I'm looking at a league because when I'm setting up my my roster for the off season I, I you know I first go through my team and figure out who I want to keep who I want to cut and then I build a depth chart based on that and start to plug in dollar values for like okay I'm keeping four middle infielders but none of them are really you know, two of them, I'm happy with one at second, happy with one at short, but I need a starting middle infielder. And then I've got a couple backups. So I'm going to spend 15 bucks getting a starting middle infielder. Mm-hmm. And I've got six outfielders I like, but I need a, a headliner for my outfielder. I'm going to spend 40, 45 bucks. So I build out a budget like that. It's not something I necessarily like stick to very seriously at the auction. And, you know, I'm sure Pete and I will talk about auction strategy later in the offseason, but I make one assumption that I think aligns with what Justin was saying about, you know, I'd rather be, I'd rather overly aggressively cut and give myself more flexibility later than saddle myself with an overpriced guy now. And so I make a relatively low assumption on uh, inflation when it comes to my keep and cut decisions. And then I make a relatively high one when I'm building out that budget. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that I'm actually looking at myself, my budget and saying like, Okay, if I have fifteen dollars, like if I if I need to get a starting quality middle infielder and I'm expecting inflation to be really high, maybe I can't budget fifteen dollars. Maybe I have to budget twenty or twenty five dollars to get that starting quality middle infielder. And that then then I iterate off that and go back at my roster and say, man, that like you know that twenty dollar Glaber Torres who I was sort of torn on before and decided to cut because of my conservative assessment of inflation is actually a guy I I maybe need to keep because if I'm wrong and I go into auction, there may not be a way to replace him. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I sort of iterate that way, but I still end up with something that is higher for how I'm budgeting for open roster spots. I, I'm just expecting it to cost a lot to fill those open roster spots and lower for what I think on the, on who I'm keeping because I do think I generally agree with Justin that I want to be more I, I want to cut a little bit more aggressively and give myself a little bit more flex going into the auction. Um, but Adam, I think you're also right that it's at, at that bottom, right? It's like keeping too many three to five dollar guys who you really think this guy he's this is his year and he's going to break out blah blah like. Keeping too many of those, it, it can hamstring you more than you realize in terms of how you are able to function at the auction because you have fewer roster spots to work with. And all of those $4 guys who you could replace with a $1 guy, like that adds up pretty fast, right? If you've got, you know, like I said, if I budget $15 for my middle infielder and I keep four, one, four or $4 guys and I can replace them all with $1 guys, well, that's an extra 12 bucks that I could spend at that middle infield spot or somewhere else or save for later in the season. So it's a challenge. And, and, and I think you guys are, are, basically, I think you guys are both right. I think, Justin, you're right. You want to be a little more on the, the conservative side. Adam, I think you're you're right that 
at the top end, you need to be a little bit more aggressive about keeping guys if, if there's opportunities, whereas at the bottom, it's maybe a little easier to be like, you know what? This $4 guy isn't so different from five other $4 guys. And if I have to get someone else at auction, I will. Um, and it's sometimes it's talking myself out of like, I really like this guy. I picked him up for two bucks last year because I was super high on him. Um, that's especially true with prospects. I have like, I have so many like four to six dollar Adel Amadors this year that I'm like, <laughs> yep. I really like him. I really believe in him. But like, man, I don't know that I want to keep all of them. So we'll have to see. But let's take one more quick break. When we come back, uh, Justin mentioned a paper that Adam wrote, and I want to get into that. All right, welcome back. Right before the break, I teased a paper that Adam had written and shared with the Auto News Slack. And Adam, can you just talk to, to us talk to us a little bit about like what that paper is, why you wrote it, and, and what you sort of found from it? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, this is really something that um, I, I, I've been spending, obviously, way too much time on it. Um, but last year, particularly at draft, um, one, one of the tools that I make is something that does the live draft tracking, um, updating values, updating league inflation as the draft goes. And um, basically, as my drafts progressed, uh, I found that the updating, how the inflation was updating really didn't match um, what I thought it should. I, I mean, it, it basically inflation was was trending much higher at all points than, you know, we've been talking about, it's probably like 30% after the cut deadline. Um, it was trending much higher than that and really couldn't figure out why. And so, you know, as I, I going back um, during the season, looking at my models, uh, I realized that the, the inflation we've been talking about in this episode so far, generally how inflation is traditionally calculated for fantasy leagues. Um, if you go out and, you know, search a Google search for how to calculate inflation, um, they'll always tell you it's well, it's, you know, you have however many players rostered in the league for this salary. And so you subtract that from whatever your league salary cap is, that's your remaining dollars. And you have this, the salary cap amount of dollars of value in the league. And there's so much value rostered, subtract that and just make that division. That's your inflation. And I realized in my calculations, that wasn't precisely what I was doing. I, I was doing the same thing for the the monies available still, you know, just summing up uh, league salary, subtracting it from $4,800 for a 12-team out of new league. Um, but on the bottom, I was actually doing something different. I was actually taking the values that I had and um, summing those, summing up the values that weren't rostered already. Um, and putting that in the denominator. And I thought I was being sneaky by doing that, but really the, the issue I found with that was um, when I'm creating my values, and, and this is something that may not be true in a redraft league, but I, I think is, is true in certainly an Adenu league or in a keeper league, there's not actually $4,800 worth of value that you can actually accrue points with in Adenu. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that. I mean, one is that in, in Adenu, um, you're forced to have a dollar per 40 man roster spot. So like you can't actually accrue, there's not marginal value you can accrue with that. Um, and by marginal value, I mean value above replacement level. 
Um, but the other the the other thing that I found was that when I'm when I'm creating my values, I take a certain amount of money out of the pool and say, well, there's people are going to roster prospects, which are going to cost more than a dollar, but they're not going to give you points. Um, or there's going to be guys that when I do my methodology through the projections, they're going to project to zero value, but people are going to roster them for more than a dollar. Just in the in this first steamer run is an example of what that might do. Uh, I think Dansby Swanson actually projects to zero uh, dollars based on his steamer projection. But uh, it just I was taking a sample of my league. I know he's rostered for like fifteen dollars in in one of my leagues. So you know if you're, if you're doing a uh, just a straight calculation of that or players like that where their their projection is below replacement level, but you know teams are going to roster players like that or players they think they're going to break out and beat their projections. But essentially that means that, that means that there's already there's also less of that money to gain marginal value for. And when I'm doing my my values, I you know this is something that's going to be league dependent as well. I, I estimate that as being something like three hundred or three hundred and fifty dollars. Uh, that's that's not spent on that. Uh, that's that's something that you know we could argue about, but it's something in that range for me. But really, that means that when I was calculating inflation at drafts, I was saying, well, there's there's forty eight hundred dollars worth of value chasing. You know, uh, it ends up being something like four thousand dollars worth of value just without anybody rostered, which is obviously going to, you know, at that point you would expect inflation to be zero, but that calculation is not right. zero. That's, that's creating inflation in a league that doesn't exist yet, which is not what you want. Which is not, which isn't coherent. So, um, you know, I, I went back and I, and I took a real hard look at um, how inflation is typically calculated for, for fantasy leagues. I really... You know, and I think Justin put this well. We had a, we had a discussion about this on the Audenu Slack, but I, I think he labeled it well that what I attempted to do in this paper was I attempted to uh, model inflation based on the information I have about player values rather than just naively looking at at league um, salary cap. So really, there's only as many dollars as I project value, and there's only obviously there's only as much value as I project value. And I had a you know I had a couple different formulations in the paper. Um, I the the paper is something that I've I've posted to my uh, my coffee account if if people want to read it if this good bedtime reading. But uh, essentially, there's there's like I said, there's a couple things you can do. I I think um, I would probably say. I would I would really recommend in an odd new league. This may not apply to other leagues, but in an odd new league, I think you have to take out that four hundred and eighty dollars for the roster spots, um, because really, uh, in my opinion, inflation should be you're seeing how much marginal value you can buy for a certain marginal dollar amount. So you have to take the four hundred and eighty dollars out to get that, and then you know you have to I. I make a couple of arguments in the paper that I, I think that, you know, I talked about that 300 or $350 that'll be on non-productive salaries. Um, I also argue that should be taken out of, of these marginal, this marginal inflation rate. Now I found that when I do that, so if you just take out the roster spots um, and this is something I, I'm working on studying to see how this holds, I've only looked at a couple of leagues, but 
generally, if you take out the roster spots, I find that uh, versus the traditional inflation calculation, inflation is probably underestimated by on the order of like five percentage points. So, um, I you know I, I was looking at one of my leagues that I'm like, well, okay, so if if I um, this is like a twelve year league, so I you know we'll go with the traditional thirty percent inflation, you know. Let me generate a roster, generate a league that has thirty percent inflation by the traditional calculation. What do these other methodologies say inflation is going to be? And it ends up being like thirty five percent, something like that. I mean, it's it's small. It's probably within within an uncertainty, but it is a persistent difference. So, so is this? I mean, when you when you get into this, is this then changing? It's obviously going to impact how you build the tools you're building. Yes. Um, is it going to change actions you take at over the off season or in the draft? It could. Um, I mean, again, this is going. It's going to depend on what inflation turns into because essentially the the ending thesis of the paper is um, if you go by these other methodologies I've developed from starting from values. These leagues may be underestimating inflation, maybe underestimating inflation uh, calculated mathematically by a significant amount. Um, now, if, if that's the case, uh, and, and this was actually something else that was asked to be on the Slack, not in it was is in a direct message, but what what are the actionable what's the actionable information from this paper, yeah. which you know is interesting to everybody who isn't me. Uh, so. Uh, <laughs> Um, but, but essentially if, if, if the paper is correct, that we're, we're underestimating inflation, I think there's an arbitrage opportunity that, you know, we talked about being more aggressive with keeps, um, for those higher inflation salaries. Well, if the rest of your league is, is operating under the assumption that, um, inflation is 30%, then you, you go through a different methodology and say, well, no, I actually think the marginal inflation is 50%, not 30%, or, or, or whatever that may be. It's going to depend on league makeup. You know, there's an arbitrage opportunity that you may want to be more aggressive in, in keeping players because inflation is actually higher than is, is widely believed. So your purchasing power is going to be less at draft than widely believed. Now, I, the argument, and I I'm sure Justin will make this argument that that calculation probably doesn't currently align with the observed behavior at auction, but that may mean that the observed behavior at auction is not optimized. I, I don't know that again, this is, I, I really need to take the time to look at auction results this year at the, at the year auction and, and try to tease out, you know, is it, is it behaving like we think it is, or is there something else there? I mean, so my response to that would be if you get to a point where you, you keep doing this follow-up work and you, you are confident that, that your takeaway in this paper is correct and that you, the meaningful marginal inflation is higher than like it would be currently represented in something like the surplus calculator, then yeah, you should be keeping more players, especially on the high end. And I would say it doesn't matter if the observed behavior doesn't match that takeaway because you already said it, then that becomes your arbitrage opportunity. Then you're saying you should basically be 
in the bidding for every single player that at the top of the value spectrum that's available in your auction because you're expecting if you win them at a 40% premium because you think the the marginal inflation it should be 50%, then you're seeing that as a win, right? You're seeing that right. as as inflation adjusted surplus. And it doesn't matter if the rest of your league doesn't agree if you're confident that that's what it should be in terms of the inflation. So, I mean, yes, I'm very much always the person that's sort of in, in auto new slack and in these conversations and then, you know, other pa- podcasts that I've been in- involved in the one saying, I do care about what the league market as a whole at, at a league level or at, across the entire spectrum of auto new, I do care what they're going to do. I try to anchor my values and my, you know, decision points based on that. But that's the whole thing, right? If you feel strongly that your valuations and your calculations are correct and they differ from what the market's doing, then that's a good thing for you, right? That's your zigging when they're zagging. And that's how you create opportunity. As you said, arbitrage, that's how you create opportunities to accrue value that you can take advantage of that the rest of your league is leaving on the table. Interestingly, and I, I, I almost, I almost hesitate to bring this up, but uh, we talked in that, that food and travel league. I mentioned, you know, I expect Joe Katz to be keeping people more aggressively at the top end of the spectrum. And one of his stated strategies in auction is he finds the star that he thinks is the best fit for his team. And he just gets that star. He does not worry about what the price is. It's like if he thinks Mookie Betts is the best free agent for his team, he is just going to pay for Mookie Betts more or less. And at some level, that's your conclusion is that's the right strategy. Go find the best player out there and your league is going to undervalue him because your league is underestimating, is likely underestimating inflation. Now, obviously, there's an extreme version of this where that's not happening, right? You're you're saying the league is assuming 30%. You're saying it's actually 50% and somebody's willing to pay 60%. You should stop before you get to 60%. But you should be, if your conclusion is correct, it, it is... It is an optimal behavior to go out and get that that stud guy at, as Justin said, a 40 or 45% inflation price if the league thinks it's 30 because it, it's actually 50. And I think the, the other half of this that's sort of inter- interesting to me is we've had debates in the past about whether inflation is um, evenly distributed across the value chain. Right? Is it if it's forty percent for the league? Does that mean a fifty dollar player and a two dollar player are both impacted the same? I, one of the things that I've that, that being in draft leagues has really helped me to sort of think through is that the bottom of that chain can't get inflated very much, and, and the reason for that is it's easy to think about in a draft perspective, right? If you're in a twelve team league with thirty man rosters, let's say, just to give a nice round number, there are going to be 360 players drafted. The last player drafted will be the 360th best player. And that player will probably get picked in the last round because somebody will have a last round pick that they can use on that player. The same thing is true in in theory in auto new. There are 480 players being drafted. The 480th best player will be the last player taken or one of the last players taken will go for a dollar because they're only worth that dollar. And so inflation is really not going to hit those la- like a last round pick in a draft or a $1 player in auto new. And so I do think 
there is more concentration at the top. Now, we talked in a draft league about the fact that it multiplies as you go down, right? The first round guys, like Mookie Betts is going to be inflated by 10 picks. We can debate about the value of that. Whereas a guy much later in the draft might get inflated by 40 picks or 50 picks or 80 picks or something like that. But it has to come back down by the end. And so more and more, I'm, I'm, what I am seeing, I think, and, and, and going back in my auto new drafts and looking at how values have played out, I think this is relatively accurate, is that the biggest inflation by percentage falls on the middle guys. It falls on the ten to fifteen dollar player that enough that two or three managers really believe in, and so somebody ends up paying twenty five dollars for them. Um, I, I think a, a good example of this is last year. I ended up spending an awful lot on Jesse Winker, who had like a six eight dollar projection or something like that. And but there were always a couple of managers who were like, "This is where I'm going to spend my inflation dollars. This is where I'm going to spend my extra dollars. This is a guy I think is going to bounce back." And I think that happens every year in my leagues, at least from what I've looked at. And I, I, I should maybe quantify that a bit more than just sort of what I'm doing right now, which is which is very anecdotal. But anecdotally, I think that's what I see is that there's often a five, ten, fifteen dollar player who goes for a hundred percent premium, sometimes even more. Whereas those fifty to sixty dollar guys, they might go for a thirty or forty percent premium, but it doesn't go beyond that. And the $1 guys often are still $1 guys. Now, that's not always true. There's often like that $1 guy who multiple teams like who ends up going for $5. That ends up as 500% inflation or 400% inflation on that player. But across the $1 guys, there are still going to be a lot of $1 guys. And across the $50 guys, you're still going to see that sort of 30%-ish inflation on average. Whereas I think the, the, the bulk of it comes in the middle which again reinforces, I think, what you're saying, Adam, which is if you can overpay expected inflation by your league on that $50 player, you're going to get value because that isn't where the bulk of the inflation is. And from what I'm saying and from what you're saying, the inflation is underreported anyways. And I'm curious if you guys, you know, do you see that same pattern that inflation is sort of steady at the top? can get really big in the middle and then dies off at the end? Or do you see something different? I mean, I think anecdotally, I I do see that, Chad. And, and that actually was something else uh, in the paper that was one of the results that I found was um, naively going into this, I made the assumption that, well, hey, if you keep a player whose salary is over their value, inflation will go down. Uh, and it as I, as I walked through the process, I found that's not necessarily true. If you, if you pay a player something less than his inflated value, inflation will actually go up just based on the math. So I, I actually, um, I kind of suppose in the paper that, well, that, you know, if we are underestimating inflation early in the draft and adhering to that, you know, if, if we're treating inflation as 30% and it's actually 50 well, if we're buying these stars at a 30% premium, that's actually going to push inflation up in the middle part of the draft, which, again, anecdotally, I think we've we've both seen that. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And, and that kind of finding is, um, you know, that's obviously not proof that what I'm doing is correct, but it's it's at least, uh, you know, 
giving me giving me a thumbs up or something like that 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 we're on the yeah it aligns and and it, and it runs I think counter to what I think is the commonly held belief and it, and it's one that I have traditionally held until I started to look at this in a little bit more detail that inflation is concentrated at the top of the values and I think you know there's been a conversation ongoing in the in the Slack channel about this and I more and more I don't think that's true. I think the pattern, like I said, it's, it, it is it it hit me when I was looking at inflation last year. So I, I have not done a ton of draft keeper leagues over the years, but we started these keeper cut listener leagues a couple of years ago. And they're the, you know, they're two leagues that I'm both very involved in and paying close attention to. And because there's certain things that Fantrax does and doesn't do, I'm end up I end up creating a spreadsheet for the entire league to use on what people are going to cost and what their keeper costs will be, and then collecting from people who they decide to keep. And in doing that, it's made it very clear to me, like I said, in those leagues, there's only so much inflation that can happen on a first, second, or third round pick because there's only so much they can move up. And then that middle tier moves up a ton, and then it starts to die off towards the end. And again, the guy you take in the 27th, 28th round of a 28-round pick basically costs what they should. And as I started to think like, well, why isn't that happening in my auto new leagues and looked at it, I was like, oh, it kind of is. And so I do think it, it runs against the common wisdom that you're going to pay a higher premium, a higher inflation premium on the top of the draft. And so that was when I read your paper. It That's what jumped out at me was like, man, I really should be spending more on these top end guys because I do think there's an opportunity to pay them more than I'm expecting to, but less than they're really worth from inflation. And if that means I have to sit out some of the middle tier where inflation gets out of control, that's probably a good thing. And and I'm probably better off than buying at the low end where inflation isn't as big of a factor. Um, But that's going to require me, and this is where it's going to be hard for me, is it's going to require me to sit out the bidding on the $2 guy that I really like, that I'm willing to pay $4 for, but who's going to 10 Because every year I end up buying two of those guys in every one of my leagues. And like, it's just not a good use of money. And so I need to be... Th- this was the big lesson for me is like, be willing to spend on the stars, be more disciplined, even if it's a guy I love, even if it's a guy I think is going to break out, like be more disciplined at the bottom and just pick another breakout guy. I, is that is that... I mean, does that align with what you're finding? Yeah, I I, I think so. I, I do want to make just a, a little clarifying, Mark. It's it's about early in the draft um, that inflation is lower than the midpoint. It's not necessarily the dollar values because, again, inflation. Fair enough. You know, inflation is is moving as you go. Uh, it's yeah. not. It's it's a dynamic. It's a dynamic thing that builds on itself. So early, you know, the, if the stars are going early in the draft, then yes. But you know, if you're putting those. Uh, you know, those $10 sleeper guys out there or whatever, they may be cheapest at the beginning of the draft too. It's, it's just something that there's a timing aspect to it to, to be aware of. Um, so, Justin, I'm curious to get your reaction to that. Cause I know you have been a big, and you and I have debated this in the past, this question of, is there an opportunity to get value on low price guys by throwing them out early? And you've always been, I, I've argued you can sometimes sneak them through that 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 ten dollar guy you throw out in the first round might go for twenty because everybody's still got money to burn or might be everybody's fourth choice and so go for less than you expect. 
you've always said you find that values are worst early in the draft. Um, and, and to be fair, like when I draft, I, I always end up sitting out the first two rounds, not intentionally. It just is a thing that always happens to me, which means that I've also, at least in drafts, acted like that's true. But Justin, is this changing your thinking on that? Or are you still thinking, no, the you know prices are just too high at the beginning. The values are to be found later. Okay. So my, my, my response with Adam's paper was basically, I think there's some really good information in there. I think there's some ways of thinking that I need to wrap my head around and need to explore. And I think I said that as much in response to Adam on Slack, but I'm not sure I'm bought in to the, to the logical extension of, of the conclusion, right? Which is this, uh, this inflation is, you know, is actually higher than we all think. And that given that the takeaway would be spending more on the stars, being more willing to keep uh, you know, at a premium, I'm not sure I buy, I'm, I'm fully bought into that conclusion. I still think in general, because I use the surplus calculator, every draft I'm in, I'm, and, and I'm refreshing rosters during a draft. So I'm tracking live inflation, similar to the tool that, that Adam says he has, that he's doing the same thing. So with my values tracking the draft, I'm not seeing consistently deviations in what the observed auction inflation is versus the keeper inflation across the board. Some leagues, yes. Some leagues, let's say, let's assume inflation is 33% on my calculations. I have been in leagues where the first five players nominated are going for only 20% premium. It's like the rest of the league isn't fully bought in. They don't realize that there really is a lot of inflation in this league. So the first five guys go for 20%. And then you see what you're describing, Chad, where that middle tier then swells up because right. all of a sudden the managers in the league realize, I got a lot of money left. I need to get some starters. And right. those guys are $15, $20 guys, not the $50 guys. But I have to spend my money. I don't want to get out of this draft without filling my roster and spending the money on, on production. And then you see that middle tier explode and it's like a 50, 60% inflation or, or what have you. I'm just throwing, you know, make-believe numbers out here. but And then I've been in other leagues where I think inflation is 33%. And that first tier, the first five or six top value, top you know productive assets are going for 40, 45% inflation. And then there actually are values in the middle. Or maybe inflation stays high all the way through the, through the first tier and the middle tier, and then all the values are at the end. In general, I still think across the board, inflation is linear. And that what I'm seeing in my leagues matches overall the expectation that I have. It's just that league by league, the shape might be slightly different because of the context of the league, because of the context of whether it's a four by four league or because that's the other thing you play in four by four or five by five, and you're traditionally a fan points. You may think that a certain player should go for $70 in five by five, because that's what they're the best players are worth in fan points. But my opinion is five by five in general, the very best players in five by five aren't worth as much as they are worth in, in basically any of the other formats. So, yeah, agreed. So, but I think my biggest takeaway is I think there was a lot of interesting stuff in what Adam had in that paper. I think the idea of marginal inflation is something to explore 100%. If you think about it, so Adam, like if you think about marginal inflation only, 
And Chad, earlier, you brought up the concept of a $50 player versus a $2 player. Well, if you only calculate inflation on the marginal above the $1 minimum, then that $2 player, only $1 of their $2 in value is inflationary, right? Right. Whereas a $50 player, $49 of their $59 or $50 salary, you know, value would be subject to inflation. So I think that might describe a little bit of what we see where I agree with you, Chad, that you don't really see inflation too much on the low end because a $1 player is a $1 player and you're still going to have $1 minimum bids at the end sure. of the draft. Um, but I also don't know that we should be drastically escalating our inflation assumptions at the top end. Um, but as I also said on Slack, I'm willing to be wrong about <laughs> a lot of things that I believed, especially things that I might've believed for a long time. It doesn't mean that I'm right. It could just yeah. mean that, you know what, maybe I should have been all these years, I should have been more aggressive in acquiring the premium assets because they actually have more inflation adjusted surplus than I thought that they did. But so that's where I am. We're basically lots of interesting stuff to think about and digest. And I do want to incorporate some of those takeaways from Adam's paper, but I'm not fully bought in on the, you know, the logical conclusion of be more aggressive in your keeping and be more aggressive at the top of auctions. I'm not so sure about that. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I think the, you know, this is a, a like I said, a, as I said at the beginning of the episode, and we're, we're now sort of at the end of the episode here. Uh, but as I said at the beginning, like it's a relatively simple concept, but it's also very complicated. And it, it's simple because, hey, there's more money to spend than there is value available because people kept value at lower prices than it should have cost, should have, quote unquote. Um, but it's complicated because there's just a lot of thought that that needs to go into how do you calculate it? How do you use it? How does it impact how you you act in a draft uh, and on keepers for that matter? I, I think you know I didn't expect us to to you know solve this question on this episode, and, and we haven't. I think the big takeaway for me, and this is probably less of a takeaway for the two of you because you guys have already been doing this to some degree, but I am going to try to be a little bit more proactive about tracking inflation during my drafts and, and that that could mean you know becoming a, a a you know joining the patreon for justin or 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 going to uh adam's ko-fi kofi whatever we decided that was called coffee um and, and getting his draft tool to to use something that calculates it in real time it also could just be a matter of having your like inflated values in front of you and tracking as you go like hey Early on in this draft, players are going below my inflated values, and later in the draft, they're going above. They're, therefore, later in the draft, they'll have to go above it. But being aware of that in some way and adjusting your strategy in the draft based on that, right? I think one of the things I talk a lot about in draft strategy is is flexibility and adaptability is really important because you don't know how things are going to go until things get going. And I, I think for me, the big takeaway here is like. If I think I'm going to get a big star at a high price in a draft, and that's one of the things I need, I want to be watching that inflation really early on and saying like, geez, inflation is going way too high early in this draft, which is more aligned with, I think, what Justin is saying he traditionally sees. And therefore, I want to hold off. And instead of getting that one big star, I'm going to get three mid-priced 
guys that are that are starter quality that I'm happy with but aren't necessarily studs. Or alternatively, like wow, early in this draft, I was you know I wasn't expecting to buy a star, but the the prices are good, and I'm going to act now because the guys I thought I was going to get for 15 bucks are going to go for 20 because inflation is so low early on. So I think that would be my big advice for for auctions for for you know snake drafts or or, or draft pick drafts of any kind like you can't really do that i mean you there, there's no you know the draft is the draft and the the most expensive guys are going to go first the best players go early and the worst players go later and, and so this doesn't change a lot for me except that i think when i think about my keepers like that mookie bets that i was debating keeping for a first round pick i am a little bit more inclined now to try to grab a late first round pick and bank 10 picks of value on bets early on, I think. Um, but I, I'm I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll have to see because I, I think I, I've got to sort of wrestle with what all of this, this means for that context. But um, anyways, uh, we've been at, we've been at this for almost an hour and 20 minutes and uh, we had some talk before this. So it's been, you know, a good 90 minutes that I've kept you guys away from your, Saturday morning, Saturday afternoon for you guys, Saturday morning for me. Um, but uh, thank you both for joining. Um, Adam, remind people where they can find your tools. Yeah, so um, you can go to my uh, coffee page. That's uh, ko-fi.com slash blue shoes, one word. Um, and from there, you can see I've got a link to my GitHub profile that's got uh Notably, my open source uh, Adenu Toolbox tool. It's a Python application you can install and uh, and use for anything you desire for Adenu someday. <laughs> At least some things you desire for Adenu. So, Many, yes. Yeah. Working on and, more. and Justin, thank you as well. And remind people again where they can find all of your work. Uh, yeah, all my tools uh, are hosted on Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash vibot, V-I-B-B-O-T. Um, and Chad mentioned earlier, I'm also on Twitter. I, I mostly just retweet some stuff and post some updates to, to various, uh, auto new things on Twitter, but my Twitter is at Justin Bibber. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's it. So, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention Chad that it like, this is just classic po uh, podcast length for us, the, the, the exceeding an hour, uh, yeah. and maybe we wanted to keep it under an hour. It, it feels like we're, we're back recording, uh, Autobot again. So, <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's for sure. True. I have to remember that when I invite you on that. Yeah. It, it's, it's, it, go. it's definitely a me problem. I would say, right. It's my fault it's, that we go long. It's a, it's a solid 33% <laughs> inflation in podcast length <laughs> due to Justin. So. We need a, we need a podcaster <laughs> length inflation surplus calculator. Yeah. There's probably a way to calculate that across like different guests, stuff like that. So uh, get on that, Justin, figure that okay, out. All right, I'll work on it. <laughs> all right. Well, again, thank you guys both for, for joining to all our listeners. Thank you for listening. Um, again, this being the off season, we're on an every other week schedule. So you'll hear this on, Monday, November 27th. It'll be Monday, December, I don't know, 11th, 10th. I don't know, some some date in December that we'll be back. Hopefully Pete will be back for that one. I believe he will. But again, thanks for listening. We'll be with you in a couple weeks.